Cross the Streams Podcast. Cross the Streams Podcast. Kip and Kane. Season 4 is here. New content in all our favorite segments like Listen Up, Hometown Heroes, Useless Full Information, Calling Men In, and many more. The Ion Brothers are back, everybody. Cross the Streams podcast, Calling Men In segment. Kip Ion here. Kane is in a team meeting as Montana State and a lot of the rest of the football world try to figure out how to navigate Getting to a football season this uh, late summer with COVID raging through the the country still. But I'm super excited. Uh, Always excited to learn during the Calling Men In segment. Um, I've been lucky enough to have Carly and Jeff with me throughout. I think it's our seventh episode of this, which is awesome. But I'm going to let everybody introduce themselves. Uh, We have a special guest joining us. It's a veteran of the pod. She's been on before. So I'm going to start with her uh, and reintroduce herself to the Cross the Streams group. Andrea, you go ahead and start. Hi everyone, I'm Andrea Hickmeyer. I am the Director of the Gender Resource and Advocacy Center at Willamette University. And in that role, I do both advocacy work, um, providing direct service to victims and survivors of sexual violence, and I also do prevention work across campus. And we are lucky enough to have worked with Andrea throughout the last couple of years. Uh, she has been a sounding board for me and keeping me straight on the straight and narrow with stuff that's smart and stuff that's dumb. And we're looking forward to doing more of that. Carly, you're next. Hi, everybody. My name is Carly Rohner. I'm so glad to be back. Um, I'm the campus coordinator at the Oregon Attorney General Sexual Assault Task Force, and my role is to help support work on college campuses across Oregon. Welcome back. Thank you very much for joining us as usual again. Jeff, you're up. I appreciate the space. It's good to be here. Uh, Jeff Matsushita with the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual Domestic Violence. So I'm actually just going to name, um, this is out of my wheelhouse, the subject, and our family is a statistic. Uh, Boise, Idaho, we, uh, the rest of us are flamed up with, with rapes, and we tested positive. So the brain is still working its way through. No, and we appreciate you being on here, man, and when, you know, strength and power to you guys dealing with the virus. Let's start, Carly, let's go in reverse order. I've been struggling to find it, so maybe you guys can help and the listeners out there. Can you give, give us something? We've all been dealing with so much trauma and stress, and I mean, across the country, across the world. Is the, Give us a positive that's happened for you lately. I know it's hard. I know it might be naive yeah. and pretending the sky is pink. But give me something that's positive. Like I would say, like I, my family, we got the kids. It took us five hours to watch a two and a half hour production, but we watched all of Hamilton yesterday. And I know there's more controversy about the historical accuracy at Hamilton, but goddamn it, it was entertaining. There was so much talent on display. I am not going to apologize for enjoying the songs and the performances. We can get into what I really learned about Hamilton or not later, but we, as a family, enjoyed that. You go ahead. That's going to be where our podcast dovetails next, is uh, the <laughs> yes. of Hamilton. Yes. I love it. No, I think one of the things that's been really great in my world um, is work-related, and it's related to what we're talking about today, is that we, I think, with the new Title IX rules and regulations that have come out, we have some schools doing some really incredible projects that are really uh, prevention-focused and really exciting. And so I think, um, especially after months and months of bad news or months and months of what feels like just... Um, kind of getting hit at every angle here, both professionally, folks that we know not feeling well or getting COVID, all of these different components. Um, this this new energy that has come up in our professional space has just been really 
exciting to see because it's been something that is, I feel like, been absent for a while. So we can talk more about that later on, but I'm really excited about some of the developments, not only that schools are doing, but also just work across the state in relation to violence prevention. Awesome. Andrea. Yeah, I'm going to share that Hamilton joy with you. Um, (laughs) Our family did a watch party on Friday night, and same thing. Like, we brought the pillows out to the living room, uh, made it a whole thing with popcorn and all that. Uh, The kids did give up about (laughs) mm, 45 minutes in, I think. Uh, But we really enjoyed it, and I have been immersing myself in all of the articles (laughs) over the last day or so, just reading critiques, but also... Um, I I should send you this one where um, it just describes really the subversive aspect of not necessarily being historical at every point of entry there and how uh, it really just makes room for folks of color to engage in our history in a a new way and feel, um, I think, committed to um, improving it, which... Mm is so relatable right now. Absolutely. Um, the Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. Women like, and protesting and whatnot. So. Jeff. Uh, we, we made that attempt to be uh, informing ourselves while we're holding up, and uh, we lost a vote, which is odd. Three to four in our house, and you lose a vote, um, even though we have a majority. Um, the, the withholding was our six-year-old, who has immense power, and said no. Um, so I did what every good parent does and we queued up Thor instead. So, you know, went with the Marvel route. Um, but you know, what brought me some joy is I've heard the name James Baldwin for years in this prevention work, certainly with, with men, um, and, and had read little bits about him, but somebody recently said, before you read him, you got to watch him. So queued up, I'm not your Negro, uh, Amazon's running it right now. And, it, it took me three hours to watch the 90 minute because it was like I was watching game film. I kept going back, like, whoa, 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 what? Run it back, run it back and listen. Um, and it's just amazing, again, the joy of, of, of him when he was saying this so long ago during a different time, but it's the same time and it's the same same conversation. Um, so it gives me hope that we already know where we're going, where we need to go. Uh, just We need to amplify those voices and people who have that experience. So, um, again, just the cheat code for, for this afternoon's conversation with y'all. Um, we already know what's right. And how do we re- go back to be empowering, listen to people who experience the violence and all the harm. Um, and thank we have two experts on the call that I get to participate and listen to this. So I look forward to the dialogue. No, I appreciate everybody. And, uh, you know, it's, I think there has been moments, Carly, you said it, all of you guys alluded to it. Some of the conversations with folks that you enter the conversation in the space of you're both struggling or you're both out of a wind in your sails. Like I had this with Jeff connected me with a coach at Boise State and the three of us talked for an hour and a half. And I went into that conversation down and came out of it for about 40 minutes with some positive juice. And I needed that. So I appreciate you guys today doing more of that work. And I know we're going to center the, the topic on Title IX. Um, and as Jeff mentioned, I am in the same boat, com- stupid of it, compared to Carly and Andrea and what they know. But I want I wanted to use our small plan- platform to amplify their knowledge and let folks know what it has always been in the work that's gone on behind the scenes that people don't pay attention to, and also some difficulties that have been thrust upon that work based on developments in Title IX. So I hope to do a good enough job today facilitating the conversation and shutting my mouth up and letting people go and asking questions that further that conversation. And by all means, Andrea and Carly, feel free to take over if you need to keep, shh, we have it. 
because a lot of people don't want to hear me laughing anyway on this thing. So let's start here. And if you guys, we talked about it kind of beginning. I wanted to enter the conversation presenting the misconceptions or maybe just overall ignorance to what Title IX really really did did or does on campuses because I think a lot of people only know the monetary and the budget aspect or the number counting point of Title IX being initially drafted to ensure equal opportunity for women in sports, which we all know, like Jeff said, that's the right goddamn thing. That's what needs to happen. But I think less folks are aware of its application to sexual harassment, assault, domestic violence, dating violence, stalking, everything that can happen that doesn't allow people to be safe on campuses. But Carly, Andrea, Carly, you start. Andrea, you guys kind of take over. What has it always been doing that people were probably ignorant to before we get into why they should care about what's happened to it? What has it always been doing that you guys are so immersed in? Yeah, and I think you cued that off perfectly, is that a lot of folks have, especially in athletics, have an intersection with Title IX because of um, equitable access in sports and being able to provide female-identified athletes with a space that's an even playing field, for lack of a a better pun in that way, for um, their school and their sports teams to be able to engage. One of the really great things, so that was in involved in 1972 is when we saw that really start to take shape um, in legislation and on our campuses and in um, K-12 to schools also. But one of the things that that developed quickly into, and Kip, just like you said, is that arena of um, anti-sexual harassment work. And originally, especially through like the 80s, we really thought of that as like that quid pro quo faculty, staff, coaches can't be promising um, their players or students uh, more advantages in exchange for sexual favors or um, anything around in that arena. And through a lot of student activism, staff activism, but particularly activism of undergraduate students and undergraduate students of color, we really started to see students pay attention to and colleges and universities pay attention to um, other areas of violence that we've talked about on this podcast. So like you're saying, stalking and intimate partner violence um, and sexual assault. And so that really quickly, um, as it got to the federal level, saw changes in how um, schools responded. So where it went from, hey, we got to make sure that everybody has equitable resources and access in terms of athletics, what that really changed into was how can we make sure that staff and faculty and students on campus all have a safe educational environment. So we can't be precluding folks from their college or university experience, especially when it comes to academics or sports or other activities. Uh, We want this to be a safe environment for everyone and a safe working environment. And so where it started originally like, hey, sports, let's make sure that's equitable. It's really grown into this um, amazing tool that we can use to make sure that those learning environments are safe and healthy for everyone. And I was just gonna add to that, I think, Um, holding the universities accountable to upholding Title IX. Um, But Title IX was passed as, you know, part of the women's liberation movement. And I think it's important to um, just acknowledge that it wasn't passed so that sports specifically would be more equitable, but that was just the most visible Mm. uh, space that we saw immediate change, right? And if you combine kind of the the shame and the stigma around sexual violence 
you know, more generally, um, I think that it was less visible, um, you know, throughout the years and it took some kind of healing back, you know, the onion, so to speak of exposing, um, that as a, you know, a specific route to achieve that safe space and gender equity Mm. on campus. No, thank you both for that. And I, I was I was thinking the relationship and what Andrew, especially you talked about here. Last ep- podcast episode, wait, I had a former student of mine that went on to play professional basketball and his coach. We were talking about the kind of this is sports overrated or underrated as a healer and a combiner. So it made me think about we had to utilize sports to get eyes on something so important that's probably bigger than sports. But is that is that similar to what you were is that on the same wavelength? Yeah, I think definitely. I think once, um, you know, we're shifting the focus to uh, maybe something that so many of us engage in out of excitement and joy and competition and fun. um, And yet we see that, you know, maybe there are holes in that, right? That um, equity um, and competition isn't necessarily built into the fabric that we're able to, you know, um, I guess, draw that out and um, work towards making it more of a just system. Gotcha. Jeff, from your end, is that, you know, I, I appreciate Carly's historical overview and Andy's framing. Is that where in your work has Title IX come up? You know, is it, I know for me as a, even in the work that we've talked about on the podcast that we do with our players, I think I've been, I still hear in my locker room, oh, that must be a Title IX thing. When the girls get a better dessert on the bus than we did. And it's like, no guys, they literally ordered smarter. It has nothing to do with the budget and or what you don't have is not a result. But I like I have been woefully unprepared to participate in what Title IX really is. How has it come up in your day to day? Oh, uh, any day excuse young men can have or find and not just young men, but men like, oh, it must be a big ass deal. That must be sexism or my favorite is reverse sexism, <laughs> reverse racism. Like, And it is that comes back to fragility. And I think from us as men, sometimes we need to have the conversation like what makes us uncomfortable and what is harmful, right? And a lot of the times these conversations where we perceive to be harmful are really just discomfort because we're talking about something that we have, we have to give up something um, without realizing we got it, right? It's like winning the 100-yard dash when you start at 40 mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. assuming you, you pulled your ass up. But no, all those things that have been ahead of you, or, and, you and put you ahead of others, we hadn't realized. So it's, it's really the uncomfortable piece. I think men will get it. I, I don't think that there's they're up against it in an adversarial way. The young men, from coaches though, they presented to me of like, um, I had one unnamed university who just was saw it as an adversarial role between the coaching staff, Title Nine, and the student conduct, and, and and kind of all three of those arms. And I was asked to come in and do a quote Title Nine training because these guys can get kicked off for doing things that aren't illegal. And so it, it comes back to that, the, the right, wrong, and, and, you know, that's not illegal, but they can't play and they see this bullshit. So it's the relationship piece of seeing everything is adversarial. It scares me about us as men. And I think again, men in a competition role, like coaching, we, we see that either us versus them. And it can't always be that way. Cause every damn campus I've been to, it's, this is the, the we, right? I mean, Y'all's colors are flying all across town and banners and stuff, but yet internal fighting happens because of, oh, you know, you're going to question a football team? How dare you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Carly, Andrea, can you take us now to 
how your roles and jobs you've either held or held now have played into enforcing Title IX or, or carrying out its vision? Uh, sure. Um, I feel like the, the term enforcing feels really strong. Um, I definitely have not. Been well, you can change in... it. Blow it up. Tell me I'm dumb. Feel free. <laughs> no, <laughs> I just I didn't want to, um, <laughs> I guess, own that personally because I have not sat in a position where I've been like a conduct manager or an investigator. Um, I've really um, primarily been in the advocate role at the institutions that I've worked at, um, which has been um, you know, so insightful in terms of seeing the process function and, you know, working alongside survivors as they're engaging with the process. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, not so much upholding, um, the role I have right now, I do participate in our kind of title nine, um, case management team where we meet weekly uh, throughout the year and we do receive the title nine reports and um, really try to assess the immediate safety concerns of the individuals involved um, but because of my role being confidential i don't have a like a vote per se like when it comes to making um, decisions collectively about moving forward with the investigative process and whatnot Gosh, thank you. Carly. Yeah, and I think my role has been really similar in some of the things that Andrea spoke to around um, being on the ex like the external components of those processes or reports. And so most of my background is as a preventionist. I think one of the things that we talk about often in our work is that prevention, advocacy, and then response and thinking like folks who are in the conduct system or Title IX system or those folks who are investigators um, really kind of serve as one continual cycle. And so as a preventionist, I really saw that role as being the person who was helping to communicate what that process looked like outside of an individual one-on-one -on -one relationship with a survivor. So as advocates, because um, and I think that was a piece that uh, I really agree with Andrea around our job is to help folks navigate that process every day through the um, second that they uh, come to us to if they decide to make a report and if they go through a hearing process. Well, prevention folks a lot of times are communing to, communicating to the broader community, hey, this is what this looks like. These are what resources are available to you. This is how it fits in and what we want for a healthy and safe campus. And so I've intersected with it in that role and as an advocate, and then also on the far other end as a hearing administrator, um, looking at like what are some of the policies that we have on campuses um, and how is that actually helping to enforce the policies that we have? And so actually having to adjudicate and make a decision about if somebody was responsible or not responsible um, for what they were accused of in a Title IX report. And I think those give me a really big appreciation for there are so many different places that um, different folks on campus can intersect with this process, even if it's not their role. So often I would have coaches as support folks coming in. So I'm doing like running a hearing for someone and their coach was somebody that was there to support them and help them walk through it. Um, and so just, yeah, I think really now that's where my work intersects is helping all of those different roles on campus understand how they can best support their students if and when they're involved in this process, but also how we can help them 
before they even get there. Mm-hmm. So how can we prevent this violence? How can coaches, other folks uh, in different roles on campus help to prevent that violence from happening in the first place? That's, that's funny. Kind of where you, I intersect all over the place. It's funny you mentioned the hearings because that I was going to mention. That's my only entry prior to us starting the teams of men and working with you all. Um, was as a hearing, like being a part of that and reading reports and in, interviewing people and then having to make decisions. And it, the, I think the very first time I got invited, the person at Willamette called me and said, it's a Title IX hearing. And I said, I don't know nothing about budgets. And they're like, no, idiot. That's not, not what we're saying. It's, I need you to come. And so that was really, um, so is the response, okay, I, that makes a ton of sense. Jeff, I'm assuming a lot of your work fits on, obviously in the prevention side of this thing. All prevention, education, yeah. It's almost kind of ties in. I'm curious how the Cleary Act plays in with, with some of this. That's I, I, People brought me in under that guise. So does that lie in, Andrea, Carly, with campus in Title IX? Yeah, all of our campuses, um, there's federal legislation where folks need to have ongoing prevention work throughout the year and across a student's uh, time on campus. So I think often folks think about it like when students first get to campus and their orientation or like that kind of freshman first year orientation, let's like get them all the information. But we, all schools have the obligation and and the opportunity, not an obligation solely to provide that kind of education to folks throughout the entirety of their career. So I'm sure that's why folks were like, yeah, we wanna keep providing this education to students and have Jeff come in in that role. I just wanted to add to and, and kind of reiterate the fact that um, when we talk about Title IX, it does encompass so much of the prevention aspect. I mean, it is very much about keeping a pulse on campus climate and what that culture looks like as we um, try to maintain a safe, you know, equitable campus space. So I think oftentimes, you know, students, staff, like we say, oh, Title IX, and we only think about kind of the policy, the adjudication, the investigation process, right? Kind of all those terms come to mind, but it's very much um, encompassing of prevention work. Can you, and Andrew, you can, you can stay with the, with the, with the, with the conch, so to speak, where were, what was maybe success stories? I don't know if that's the right way. What was working before we talk about what, what's been changed? What were areas that you felt maybe energized or there was support building or you would you got you had created something based on the the old regulations and or policies before we take the first break and then we'll come back and kind of talk about what the new issues are um i think gosh i feel like that's a that's a big question but um what was working i have just been i'm gonna just go with what's fresh in my brain right now i've been combing through our most recent climate survey results that we did last fall, so fall of 2019. And with the um, you know, new administration, they've um, dismissed all of the um, recommendations and kind of directives from dear colleague letters and so forth um, from the previous administration. And one of those pieces was the um, you know, best practice to do a climate survey every few years on your campus. And I think that's something that we will continue to do just because it's giving us good material mm-hmm. and we can, you know, make a great assessment about progress and what we need to focus on. Um, but to know that that's not necessarily um, elevated as, you know, an opportunity <laughs> or obligation, right, um, for other universities to follow through with, that that disappoints me. 
Um, I think there are other aspects too around um, just the way we've, um, I guess, curated our process to be very thoughtful around survivors' experiences and um, some of the new regulations, of course, uh, chip away at that. And so that's that will be disappointing, but we are, of course, trying to figure out how we um, either work around it or, you know, yeah. have the opportunities that, that are presented out of those challenges. Carly, momentum that you guys were building? That was that was that's been halted. Yeah, I don't know necessarily that all of it has been halted, and I'll talk more about that mm -hmm. later. But I think one of the things that we uh, were really excited that more schools was do were doing in general was this inclusion of campus-based advocates. So Andrea and I have both been in those roles on campus, and the flexibility again in a survivor-centered, student-centered way to allow folks to choose what support options were going to be best for them. And so in Oregon, we really had a lot of momentum for that around 2015. 2016 when we had advocate privilege incorporated where folks could go to somebody and be able to speak confidentially just like you would with a doctor or a lawyer or anybody else and know that you were going to get good information about what opportunities or resources your school could provide you. So I think that combined with this flexibility in our old Title IX guidance to say, yes, you absolutely should be um, not only offered a support person, but the school should really make sure to do that in a thoughtful and uh, student-centered, survivor-centered way. That piece has been altered a little bit. And so that is a, an opportunity here in Oregon that we've really capitalized on and that we're going to have to do some work around to make sure that that continues. Gotcha. Gotcha. Let's take our first break. We'll come right back and we'll dive into these changes we've, we've touched on and, and get into that. Cross the streams. Cross the Stream Podcast and its creators, Kip and Kanayon, stand for anti-racism and for being disruptive to bigotry in all its forms. Before, now, and forever, we implore our listeners to listen to learn, learn to care, and care enough to act. All right, we're back. And I want to, I don't know where to start besides, like, so was this, what we're talking about, Title IX, we've got our Calling Men In crew with us. We're talking about changes in Title IX. Is it is policy change? Is that accurate, Carly, Andrea, that we're talking about? Or like, is it a new law in general to it? Like, I know it's been changed. So what's the best way to address in like the all-encompassing? They just change language and that affects everything? Like, I'm, I'm staring right now at severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive rather than severe, pervasive, or objectively offensive. And that's a huge change just because of the word and. So how, how do you guys how do you guys describe what what uh, secretary is it DeVos DeVos DeVos, aka the DeVos. devil? Yeah, how would you describe it? It's a rewriting of Title IX or amendments? Yeah. So Title IX in itself is an amendment, and it's actually the entire bill of the language was really tiny prior prior to all of this um, process over the last couple of years of us going in and. Uh, uh, and by us, I should say the Federal Department of Education, <laughs> which is under the Office of Civil Rights. So not us like me, Andrea, you, uh, Jeff, anybody like that. Um, so that really short paragraph also has to be interpreted by a lot of schools. And so what they have done is at the federal level said, OK, we're not going to just give you um, suggestions. We are actually going to go through a full administrative process 
um, which Andrea and a bunch of our other campus folks have had to go through the last couple of years and really put into place exactly in law some procedures and application of that amendment of Title IX. Andrea, if you have other thoughts, I'd love to have you jump mm-hmm. in because that's really, it's a, it's a really short little bit of, um, of legislation at the federal level that then has a big wide sweeping impact at all of our schools. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, what I'm kind of smirking about right now is just the fact that we just as, you know, regular people, we know so little about the law, right. Mm -hmm. And about how government functions. And, um, I've heard these be called, you know, the new regulations, the new rules, the new law, the new amendments, like all these different terms, which I think if you were a lawyer, like you would know very specifically what each of those terms mean, right? Mm-hmm. And the distinctions between them. Um, so yeah, I appreciate what Curly's saying, just the little blurb has been, you know, as it was for decades. And I think each administration has been able to interpret it differently. And now we are getting kind of supplemental language um, that kind of minimizes that ability to be subjective. So we're getting more, um, yeah, concrete understandings of what it's supposed to look like. So you, Carly, I think you, you mentioned prevention advocacy response. Is it affecting all three of these? One more so than the other? Where do you, got, where do you guys all want to start? with the changes and what people should be aware of? Yeah, I think that the actual rule that has come out, so the way that the uh, current presidential administration has gone through this process is instead of just saying, uh, we're going to put out kind of like a memo to all the schools and say, this is how we think that you should um, interpret this very small paragraph, and this is what we expect of you to do on campuses, they've actually gone through a federal rulemaking process and so now what we have is a lot of rules that really focus around the response that a school has when it receives notice that something has happened. So if I'm a coach and I have a player come to me and something has um, somebody has harmed them or they think that they've harmed somebody else, what is my obligation? That's touched on in these new rules. And how should the school respond to this? Um, and when should they? And when is that appropriate? And so that is where we've seen some of the tightening around this. I, again, I think that there's every time that we have a rule change to advocacy response or prevention, it's going to impact that entire continuum. And so while these are really focused in on adjudication or hearings or when a school can get a report or how a school is expected to respond, any of those can either boost the safety of a campus environment and the student's um, sense of safety and, and the actual amount of violence that they're experiencing, or depending on how the school responds to that, I think it can have a really big chilling effect based on any of those areas, advocacy, prevention, or response. And so while it's really focused in on um, the response or conduct area, it touches all three of those. Andrea, addition to that? And just to add for further context, the uh, prevention component is more specifically outlined in terms of what's required of universities in the Campus Save Act, which is part of the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act back in 2013. So we get a little more structure around what um, the prevention world looks like for campuses and what's federally Mm. required. Jeff, have you heard, you know, with all the, like we mentioned before, you're not directly, I mean, you're on the prevention side of this. Have you heard from colleagues similar 
um, issues and framing as Carly and Andrea laying out or other concerns? Uh, no, I've been calling and asking questions mm. and they've been saying a lot. And so I'm, I need information like five, six times. Before this mm. thing's in. <laughs> the Andrea, you mentioned earlier, you were talking about process carefully crafted for survive to be aware of survivor experiences. One of the things, even in Twitter, twin Twitter trending, try saying that. Twitter, Twitter, uh, Twitter trending when this all rolled out was concerns about the the new process slanting more towards the accused. Is that a the a right way to frame it? Or talk to us about what the new process and the rights of the accused. Yeah, I think um, you know this is somewhat modeling the uh, approach of our criminal justice system around like innocent until proven guilty. Um, and I think because we have had such such concentrated efforts to make this process so survivor centered, there has been a bit of a backlash around that, um, causing the pendulum to maybe swing a little bit more the other way. And that's where some of this is coming from. And that's, you know, exp can you explain a little bit more in terms of like, is there a higher burden of proof now or i read something i might have interpreted it wrong that there's a cross like they can be in the same room victim and accused like they get the chance to go like basically cross-examine their accuser yeah so that was one of the um new rules that was more specifically laid out where um each party um can cross-examine the others now there are institutions that have already enacted that to some extent or a variation of what that may look like, um, which is kind of where we're at, where we're trying to fit what we have into the box that has now been restructured. Um, so a cross-examination, you know, we think about how intimidating and harmful that can look like in a you know, real courtroom um, and the way in which that can re-traumatize a survivor or, you know, have other emotional impacts um, in the context of the Title IX hearing um, process um, that can be done in, I guess, more uh, empathetic and compassionate ways. Um, so for instance, what we have um, in place already is just an opportunity for both parties to ask each other questions, but we have it filtered through the hearing administrators. So it's not a direct ask. And we're just kind of in this process now of trying to um, work with our legal counsel to say, how are you interpreting this? Here's what we do. Um, you know, does this fit? Um, the interpretation that you have, or do we need to make an adjustment? Mm. Mm -hmm. Carly? But that's just one example. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think to build off that idea that this new rule really, um, like Andrea's saying, modeled after our current criminal justice system and that process that I think a lot of folks are somewhat familiar with, or at least familiar with, like, the law and order version of and one of the things that is really different for campuses that I want to highlight for folks is that when we talk about like burden of proof and all of these terms is that this is a process where um, the, the biggest thing that we can um, limit someone from is their access to an educational institution so we can't um, impede someone's freedom. We can't put someone in prison. And so that's why there's some of those burdens of proof and things have historically been lower because really what we are looking at is like, are we going to prohibit you from accessing your education 
anymore. And so one of the things that is really difficult, I think, with cross-examination and some of these things that are modeled after the criminal justice system is that they're being modeled after a system where there's a lot um, for somebody who has been accused or has been um, found in like the campus context, we use the term responsible for a conduct violation. The criminal justice system, there's a lot potentially bigger penalty there for someone than they would experience on campus. And so that's one of the areas where I think our organization and other folks find it really difficult that we've modeled so much of this after that system is that in, in the criminal justice um, and civil service um, areas is that we just we're not talking about the same uh, limits being put on folks or the same um, types of penalty to somebody um, who's been found accused. And one of the things to Andrew's point that we're seeing is that a lot of that impact historically has really been on the person who has reported and said, I've been harmed. Um, and there's a lot of factors there where like, if you have to be in the same room as that person, what are some of the other safety things that, that, that you might be thinking about? Um, and so that's really, I think, complicated this for most of our schools. Now, and all three of you on, on this point, I was just thinking we do a, a ton of our work is climbing the hurdle of giving them the stats and the facts behind, out, like, like uh, guys want to default to, well, I don't know if it's even true. You know, that might be a false claim. And then you try to prove to them false claims are this tiny, tiny percentage. Uh, Jeff, you start and then let everybody in the prevention work. I feel like this is like definitely harming believing victims, believing women. Um, just because it's like, well, no, look, we had to put all these in because there was so much false accusations that we had to protect these accused, which we all know is bullshit. I was thinking the Shawshank Redemption, you know, like, how, what are you in for? Oh, my lawyer fucked me. Mm. Like, it, that's always what comes up. And so um, I do have those concerns about is the survivor, the person who experiences the harm, going to be less likely to report? Um, and I'm also... Um, Makes me think about what the the a case I just read about USA Today Vanderbilt mm -hmm. football player two three years ago. Yep, um, was found in violation of Title Nine, but came back on the pro day, right? And so there's this change in the in, in him being excluded from campus as a student athlete, but then he was invited by the university to come and play. So his does an individual's role change by definition of he's no longer a student, but then the football team invited him back for a pro day on campus like how does that doesn't doesn't the title nine investigation still hold with him as a person or does his status matter mm -hmm. and that sounds like it would be a decision by whoever managed that conduct case um to put parameters around his ability to still return to campus or engage in other campus programming it's andrea thoughts on the you know the oh sorry andrea carly I mean, for, for, in, in seeing what other things would play up but is that is my concern? You guys see, is that a logical step? Like, okay, there's where what is happening is because they just simply don't believe victims as much as they should. The people in power that, currently. Yeah, I think that's potentially one big component. I think the other component is trying to demonstrate um, that schools can't just. Uh, I want to use the term like willy nilly and that's not what I mean by this, but like schools can't just use um, inequitable application of title nine. So we can't be treating some cases differently than others. And I think that's really one of the things that the administration has really focused on is like, 
whoa, schools, you're just out of your depth. We're going to come in and give you um, a lot of parameters to really keep you consistent and to make sure that you are not just um, getting training that we would call survivor focused or student focused, which really provides that equitable playing field for all of our students. And what they're asking is like, don't get those types of trainings and then run with it and have, like Andrea said, the pendulum swing all the way to the other side where now you're just accusing or really going, um, you know, full speed ahead on any case where any student has been accused of um, sexual or relationship violence. And so I think, yes, there's a component of that there. Um, absolutely. I think if we just look at the history of this and how folks have rolled it out and they're, and how they have taken comment into this process. But one part of it too, is just the, the idea that student affairs professionals, coaches, schools, conduct administrators, all these folks, don't really know what they're talking about. And that's absolutely not the case. We have folks who are really incredible, some who are have been formerly potentially in these systems that they are asking us to model um, and saying like, this is a different arena and it requires a different level of care and there are different outcomes. And so it needs to be different. And that's one piece that hasn't really been um, in, incorporated in this rulemaking process. Gotcha. The I, I read something, Andrea, I'll swing this one to you. Is there also a difference now in like who's responsible to report if you're told or heard something? Is there a lower, like a less of a, and I'm thinking of mandatory reporters and now there's a more ambiguity, ambiguity in who that is? Is that a wrong, can you explain on that? Yeah, you froze up there for just a second. Oh, so I'm hoping I got all of your question there. Um, so yes, there was kind of a, rolling back of who was required to report on campus, um, whereas before it was um, recommended that pretty much all staff um, and, you know, people acting as representatives of the university were needing to be required reporters for Title IX um, situations. Now, um, there's basically a designation, right? Like there can be certain people designated and particularly the Title IX coordinator um, being deemed as like the person of authority. Uh, but, you know, Curly can chime in on this too. Um, this is also one of those examples where um, they're providing that, what did we call it? The the floor and we can you can do you guys Willamette could say more or an institution could say no we're going to yeah, do more so than an institution that. can certainly require more just by policy and um we're just at Willamette trying to say like we're kind of in the process of figuring out what that might look like and um we'll see how it plays out in the next few weeks like you just Carly and I want to let yeah, you try me good okay. no go ahead I think one of the ways that we've seen that um, really creatively implemented here in our state is that we do have a few schools that even um, before the new rule came out chose to move to a process where not all folks on campus were um, responsible employees or had to report. So it might be, um, you know, we're going to make our only a couple of folks on our coaching staff as responsible employees so that if they get noticed that something has happened to a student or that a student has um, harmed somebody else, that they're going to need to let the institution know. And historically, I think this was a really um, needed move in a lot of our institutions to make sure that schools weren't ignoring students that were coming to them for help and seeking some kind of redress for the, the experiences that they've had. 
And one of the things that I, I think a lot of folks um, in these conversations that I've heard are like, this is terrible. Like this is, we're just going to go back to sweeping everything under the rug. Like this is awful. I think personal responsibility, right? We need folks to uh, be personally responsible to take care of our students. And one of the things that we know is that a lot of times the folks getting all of these disclosures are our staff and faculties that are people of color, um, that are queer, that are women. And so we're seeing a big burden on those folks to constantly be helping survivors and advocating for them um, in any of their capacities. So I might be a geography professor but if I hold those identities, I might be getting a lot of students coming to me. The other thing that I think is really interesting about giving schools the opportunity to look at this is that, or to come up with a system that maybe works a little bit better for their school and population, is that a lot of times our students of color, our queer students, this might not be the process that feels the safest for them. So our Title IX system, I think we might design to hold folks accountable and to provide safety and to provide prevention on campus of violence. And that might not be something that they feel safe engaging in, especially as we move it towards something that models the criminal justice system. And so providing pockets on campus where folks can get that confidential resource or talk to that trusted faculty member and say, hey, this happened to me. And that faculty member, instead of reporting, automatically says, okay, I'm going to walk you through some options. I've got training to actually be able to help you look at this as a first step and then connect you with somebody like Andrea. So for coaches, that might be like, you get some extra training about how to sit with your player if something like that comes up and walk through about like, what options do you want to take care of? Or what do you, where do you want to go next? And giving some of that control back to them. Um, which uh, when I talk about like the few areas of like glimmer of hope in these rules, I think that's one thing that could really benefit some of our students that historically haven't had that benefit. Really, I thought a lot about this too, um, especially as just the push to defund police heightens and kind of with the abolitionist framework, um, I think advocacy becomes just even more important, whether it's on campus or in the community, um, because it is helpful in leading folks to an alternative path to justice and healing. And I think so often we think of justice within the criminal justice system or within the Title IX process. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, especially knowing, um, and, you know, advocates knowing this for years, that these systems have been traditionally harmful and sometimes unproductive for survivors. So I think um, the, you know, seeing the opportunity in this is helpful and we can also um, kind of reframe it in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement and how we can be more supportive to our communities of color. Mm. I, uh, Jeff, I, and I appreciate you two giving me some of that glimmer because I envision, and Jeff, this could purely be because I'm a negative person occasionally, and I, I see a lot of coaches sweeping. I see a lot of coaches without the requirement, you know, not doing this. So that worries the hell out of me. But I, I totally understand what, you know, the new framing and how we could get there. But it, it scares the hell out of me, man, if the football coach is, or the basketball coach or the baseball coach is not required to say anything. It is interesting. This is where my, my hope and faith comes from, from the student athletes and young folks. And I appreciate Andrew making a connection with the defunding and the abolition movement. Um, in these times of Black Lives Matters, I think students are recognizing their power, mm. student athletes specifically. Um, I think of the, the football 
football guys at I think it was UCLA that said, no, 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 we're not coming back unless we sign this contract that says we can dip out of anything based on COVID and fear of contraction. We won't lose our scholarship by doing things. Kind of unionizing at times, and Intendale has shot that down historically. Yet, young folks, I think, seeing these rights and connecting Black Lives Matter, you know, race equity to gender equity, the, the line is so thin, and they, they are interconnected. And so, uh, I think that's one of the pieces, you know, of the conversations that call to men in their relationship with the National Football League, the NBA, MLB. Those organizations on the national side are doing more to make connections with race and gender. And so I think that if the young folks are seeing that and wanting more, if coach, if a coach signed on to a black lives matter and said, Hey, I'm a black, I support black lives matter on my Instagram, Twitter, whatnot. That to me is the inroad for student athletes and say, okay, what does that mean? Is this more than just a damn check mark, but how are we connecting with? So I think that's the beauty I see on campuses of the, the different student groups um, between the gender equity center, women's center, um, students of color conduct uh, groups, you know, different clubs, all be intertwined that, that the through line of gender and race equity is, is intersectional identities and that's how we're going to do prevent all forms of oppression appreciate it. let's take our second break right. before we get back to the show we want to encourage all of our listeners to seek out ways each of you can actively participate in dismantling systems of oppression and to avoid the comfort of silence all right we're back uh carly you had mentioned in your follow-up to kind of our, our pre- podcast outline um i want to give you the opportunity to talk about a little bit maybe the adding more context to like to what department of ed and oregon satf are doing right now with the oregon attorney general uh in around what we've been discussing yeah and this i think is one of those conversations that i said gives me like those little glimmers of excitement or hope professionally lately and we are not the only part so i'd say we're a very small part of um a multi-state effort to say, hey, these new regulations, while there are some things that are really good in that it's good to have uh, a consistent application across college campuses, there are a couple of pieces like giving folks the opportunity to designate who's going to report, who's not. There are some things there that have also been really restrictive, like Andrea was saying, and really not what we would say as survivor student focused or supportive in that way um, or gender responsive. And so last year, Oregon put into our legislation, our state law, some guidance um, saying like, this is great. We know all these new rules are going to be coming and we want to preserve some of the good stuff that folks are already doing. So Oregon is one of the um, many states that went ahead and said, nope, like if you get a report, it doesn't matter if it happened on campus or not, you still need to to respond to it. So schools will have, I think, in Oregon and similar states, a little bit extra work to do to make all of those processes match um, and to help, like, especially with coaches, I'm thinking, like, help folks on campus understand all the nuance of that and all the different opportunities. But the work that we've been doing in Oregon, we can keep doing. And part of that is because of state law and a lot of campuses saying we need these um, really good things that help our students to stay in place. In response to the new rule, Oregon SATF and some other colleges across the state and some of our other state partners um, are working with the Oregon Attorney General um, to participate in a multi-state lawsuit to the Department of Education at the federal level, just on some areas saying like these are really restrictive um, and really not 
survivor focused. One of those being is that schools have to have all of these changes put in place um, by August 14th, which I don't know about all of you, but I know summertime for me on campus <laughs> is always like the catch up part of like, oh my gosh, my students are gone. I'm going to try and get all the things done. Or, oh my gosh, all the new students are coming and I'm trying to catch them up um, so they can start successfully. We are also in the middle of a pandemic, like we have talked about multiple times, and that time frame just feels really difficult um, in terms of setting a very short timeline, and it almost feels like a little bit of a bait and switch for folks like, hey, you got to put this in place, disregard that life is happening around you. Um, and so those are some of the things that we've joined with a lot of other states and saying, hey, this is really not one, the best time, and two, there's some better ways that we can implement this to help actually get what we want is equity and access to education and safe communities. Andrea, and you mentioned already a little bit of what you are working with for us here at Willamette, you know, kind of fighting the fight. Anything else to add on to that? Well, I think just to elaborate on Curly's point too, um, especially with a small school, you've got so many of the same people that overlap, whether it's, you know, focusing on the new Title IX regulations or preparing a semester with COVID-19 response and also, you know, others who do the anti-oppression work around racial justice. And we're all, you know, overlapping in responsibility around each of those pieces right now. So, it's really difficult to kind of suss out like what is the urgent thing today <laughs> and what will be the most urgent thing in three weeks that right. we need to deal with. Um, so to have that kind of hard deadline and to know that we've got to have at least kind of a, a skeleton in place that is checking the boxes of compliance, um, you know, in basically a month, um, it, it is overwhelming. Um, and, and I would say, yes, summer should be the time where we are finding joy and resting and rejuvenating for the year ahead. Because once that, you know, academic semester begins, we hit the ground running. Um, so I think I'm, I'm really fearful of some burnout, quite honestly. Um, but, you know, love to hear that we've got kind of these larger entities um, supporting us and pushing for, um, I don't know, I guess just more realistic and compassionate ways to move forward. In, in drawing on some of what Jeff said about, you know, empowering students or, or the students standing in their own power, you know, finding that ability to do so, I, I feel like this is especially, I've talked to so many coaches um, that I'm like, what are we gonna do without our sport? Like, what if we don't have a sport? How are we gonna justify our paychecks? I feel like there's a window there. There's a lot of education that could be done in these groups where they're kind of forced to listen to you because you're the coach. Um, and so that's, you know, I've, maybe that's a that's me being pessimistic about some of my brethren in the industry buying into that. But also there's hope there because there are a lot of, you, know, you guys have introduced me to a lot of people. Jeff's introduced me to like-minded coaches that are like, there's more to this job. And if I can't make them run a suicide in February, but they're still going to camp and there's, I mean, they're still at, at Willamette and I'm still here. Maybe this is opportunities and windows for further education, but I'm sure, and we're going to need it, aren't we? Like for the players are going to have to do some of the reporting because apparently there's not as many required folks. Uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 Andrew, I'm kind of like you, like the world is going to be okay. No, we're done. It's over. 
It's I don't I don't I, so or it's on a daily basis, right? right? That's why I hired two very positive people on my staff because I need them. <laughs> uh, other stuff before I let you guys go. I, I really appreciate it. I, I I love learning, and I'm I'm hopeful that people listening. Um, is there is there anything common common folks the wrong word people that aren't directly in the line of work like you two can do to help be aware? What what are suggestions? the things that folks can do like you said that there's often more to coaching than just the actual like what folks think about in a traditional coaching role and so if you're truly wanting your players to be healthy and safe and you're like ah, I also have some extra time to fill potentially because we're not on campus mm -hmm. or something like that I think doing some of the background um, research for yourself or reaching out to folks um, like our colleague you've mentioned earlier, Jackie Sandmeyer, a Title IX education specialist, they do work all across the nation to help coaches and other faculty and staff learn about Title IX and what some of those requirements are. So their website is ticsedu.com. Um, so folks can check out those kind of resources. I think the other thing that is built into these new regulations that could if you are finding yourself with a little bit of extra time or you're like, I'm really passionate about this and I want to make sure my campus does a good job, because of the way these new regulations are structured, most schools are going to need more people to actually be able to implement them. And I know Willamette and other schools have come up against this in the past where you want to provide a um, as little bias within the actual process as possible. And coaches can bring your expertise to that you might not work with your players. That might not be a good fit or a good case for you. But like you were saying, Kip, you've served in a hearing capacity mm -hmm. role, being a support person. There's so many other areas that folks can bring your the skills that you bring as a coach to the wider school. And so I'd say contact, contacting your advocate, your prevention person, or your conduct board to, or your conduct office to say, where could I fit in and help? I want to learn more is going to be something that is, really really needed um that person power and that capacity is really going to be helpful at most of our schools and helps you kind of address all of these other areas that would keep your students safe and healthy andrea yeah, i would echo that I, in fact i was thinking um just the reaching out right most likely the Departments on your campus that are dealing with advocacy, response, prevention work, um, they are likely to be underfunded and understaffed. So we typically... You mean there's only 1.25 1, 1. people over there, right? What? There's only 1.25 people working over there at any given right. time? Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, we, if there are students that are eager to learn and willing to help, there is so much that we could do, even, you know, working from a distance around building awareness, around... You know, educating the campus community about what advocacy is, uh, which I think, you know, even with your, um, I guess, fear or concern around having fewer required reporters, I think the training just shifts, right? Like mm. what Carly was saying, the tra training shifts from here's what you do when you get a report and here's where you file it to here's... Um, a trauma-informed way to receive that disclosure, hear kind of like advocacy 101 skills that you can do and some other options that you can direct students to. Here's what an advocate does. Here's why that might be beneficial, right? So mm. the training just becomes a little bit different and more robust. And I think um, if you've got, you know, other coaches eager to engage in that and students, we're just building a bigger network of 
people that will ultimately help to change the climate and that's the prevention piece right and mm-hmm. then of course we would see a decreased amount of violence in the end anyway right i love yeah. it jeffrey last words from you before i let you guys go besides you need to get healthy oh, rest <laughs> Oregon. Y'all are amazing. <laughs> I appreciate the, the knowledge about what's going on. Thank you. Cross the streams. Content reminder. The opinions expressed on today's episode are those of the hosts and guests alone and should not be viewed as reflective of the opinions of the institutions or employers of the hosts and guests.